From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll tell you about a step taken in Milwaukee County to better protect the environment. We'll share local efforts to spread awareness about the factors that can lead to suicide, as well as how to prevent it. I mean, suicide itself is is a complicated health issue, Um, you know, and so prevention is also complex. Plus, tell you about a new way young people are being taught about Milwaukee's history. What we really want is for Milwaukee Roots to be a way for teachers to feel like it's possible to teach in culturally and contextually relevant ways. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. It's not a a zombie-eating brains, but it's just scary. Ever heard of a zombie tree? We'll tell you what's so scary about them later in the show. We'll start with this. What if nature had rights, the same way humans do? From an indigenous perspective, it's not a radical question. Now, Milwaukee County recognizes these rights, like the right to be free of pollution. The county recently adopted a Rights of Nature resolution. It's the first county in Wisconsin to join this global, indigenous-led legal movement. WUWM's Lena Tran was there when the resolution was signed and brings this report. She spoke with people behind the campaign and activists who are eager to put the new resolution in practice. Water is everywhere in Milwaukee County. The county is laced with rivers, the Menominee, Milwaukee, and Kinnikinnick, and of course we're bordered by Lake Michigan to the east. Now the county recognizes that water and all the things that live in it have the right to exist and thrive, much the way that humans have fundamental rights to live freely and with dignity. In late October, Milwaukee County Executive David Crowley signed a resolution recognizing the rights of nature. And it's exactly why we're here today to state clearly and unequivocally that Milwaukee County land and waterways deserves to be protected and maintained to be healthy, robust, and resilient. The event opened with a ceremony. Several generations of women sang in thanks and celebration of water. They held up shiny copper water vessels and faced the east in recognition of where life for their people began. Crowley said the health of the environment is closely tied to the health of residents in the county. When we acknowledge that nature and all of its inhabitants have an inherent right to exist and to thrive, we are making our county more healthy. When we prioritize our commitment to carbon neutrality and improving climate resilience, we are making our county healthier. And when we actively defend our natural environments against harm and against destruction, we are actively making a healthy county. But, and this is crucial, rights of nature isn't about what humans can gain from nature. Pastor Richard Shaw is president of the Milwaukee interfaith organization, MICA. He spoke during the event. The rivers and lakes and natural habitats do not have value just because of their economic utility. 
in the same way that our fellow human beings are not valuable just because they are con uh, give contributions to the gross national product. Shaw used Christian language, but encouraged people to interpret his words according to their own faith and traditions. We are all valuable because I believe God made us that way. That holds true to everyone in everything that God has created, including nature. Rights of nature calls for humanity. We don't own the world. We are part of it. Human beings have a unique responsibility to ensure that people and the planet are treated with respect and always with an eye toward a future none of us will be here for. Guy Ryder is known as the leader of the movement in the state. Ryder is a member of the Menominee Indian Tribe of Wisconsin and leads the organization Menominee Rebuilders. He likened the moment to the moon landing. This is one step for man and then a huge step for, for our environment and that's the kind of the way I think about it because uh, it's been a very long time that we've been able to, to think of our environment as a part of us, as not something that's external, but it is internal. It is who we are. These ideas have been around for millennia. But as a legal tool, the movement has been gaining steam across the world as climate change forces communities to find new ways to protect the environment. When these rights are made into law, polluters can be taken to court for infringing them. In 2018, the Ho-Chunk Nation of Wisconsin amended its constitution to recognize the rights of nature. It was the first tribal nation in the United States to do that. The amendment specifically prohibited frac sand mining, fossil fuel extraction, and genetic engineering. And in 2020, the Menominee tribe enshrined the rights of the Menominee River, the site of the tribe's creation. That resolution cited several threats facing the river. Climate change, pollution, and the proposed Back 40 mine, which would sit 50 yards from the river, near the Wisconsin-Michigan border. Rights of nature have been written into Ecuador's constitution. They've been invoked in legal battles to defend wild rice in Minnesota from the proposed Enbridge Line 3 gas pipeline. The new county resolution isn't binding, so it doesn't come with the teeth of legal penalties. But David Liner says it's an important first step. Liners is a leader with Wisdom, a statewide interfaith organization. Um, Menekonikim, the group that Guy is with, is part of our Wisdom Network. And, you know, we started talking about rights of nature and said, you know, this is something that we really think, for the reasons that Dr. Shaw said, you know, really would catch on with the faith community. So a group of us in Milwaukee were saying, how do we get some footing? How do we get some people to understand more about rights of nature? And then what happened is... So a small group of Wisdom members got in touch with their county supervisors. And several of them responded right away. I mean, the very first time we reached out, at least four or five of the supervisors reached back and said yes they were interested and Supervisor Sumner said I would be happy to take the lead. They were very easy to work with and they understood the concept. You know, Next, Liner said they want to see this backed by the power of the law and they hope other communities in the state are inspired to take similar steps. You know we need to actually move to a next step that may be more difficult, I, I don't think for the people in the room today, but for some other people, this is an advisory resolution. This was a sense of the county board, that this is what it is. The next step would be to actually grant legal rights to nature. And that's, that's where we eventually hope to go, you know, where we eventually hope to see it. Right now we're building toward that. We want people to understand it. What do you say to people that are like, eh, this is too radical, like, I don't know about this? Uh, you know, what's 
what's radical is right now the way we're living in the world is not sustainable. You know, um, we need to we need to kind of radically alter our relationship with the earth if we're going to survive. We don't exist separate from our our the world that sustains us. So we have to do something. We have to do it quickly. We're we're watching what's happening all around us. We're watching the crises of water all over. We're watching climate crises all over. We absolutely need to change the way we do we do business. Other advocates agree this resolution is an important tool. Megan Keller is a member of the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. Indigenous people, and especially women, have been jailed for their activism. Keller said rights of nature gives them legs to stand on. Her main concern is Line 5, the 70-year-old pipeline that travels through northern Wisconsin, the Upper Peninsula, and Michigan. That takes it near Lake Superior and the Straits of Mackinac, where Lake Michigan and Lake Huron meet. It's the stage for a major battle between the oil company Enbridge, the U.S., Canada, tribes, and the state of Michigan. The ongoing struggle that especially the Bad River tribe up uh, north has been fighting pipelines that are eroding bad and rusting underneath the Great Lakes that are really look like they're at risk of bursting anytime. And a lot of indigenous people have been jailed for fighting that. So I feel like having this legal framework to stand on will help further that cause, but also really prevent people from being like traumatized and punished for standing up for our mother. Jill Ferguson is another person worried about Line 5. She's eager to put the rights of nature in practice. So um, so I'm a water protector. Uh, I've been arrested three times um, in Minnesota during the construction of Line 3. So this is just a wonderful day for me because now I have a tool. When I go to the front lines, um, you know, this this isn't just a proclamation that's meaningless. This This is a tool for us because until now, We've been the ones, you know, standing up for the water and for and for the earth, and we get arrested. I was beat. Up, I was severely beat up the last time by the cop. Um, I had a concussion. I have my I have frozen shoulder arm from him whipping me back to uh, handcuff me, and that's for protecting the Mississippi River. The new resolution was signed at the Urban Ecology Center's location in the Menominee Valley, steps from the river. At the riverside, water lingered on its way to the Great Lake. Birds and insects buzzed, and truck drivers boomed over a busy bridge in the distance. Things that all had the right to thrive. For Lake Effect, I'm Lena Tran. That was WUWM's Lena Tran reporting on the recently adopted Rights of Nature Resolution in Milwaukee County. You can learn more at WUWM.com. In the United States, suicide is the 11th leading cause of death and is a leading cause of death among young people. Suicide is a critical public health issue, but it can be prevented. There's work being done at the Medical College of Wisconsin's Division of Suicide Research and Healing that focuses on better understanding the factors that can lead to suicide, as well as developing ways to prevent this loss of life and the ripple effect that it has on our communities. Dr. Sarah Kolbick is the director of the Division of Suicide Research and Healing at the Comprehensive Injury Center. Her research includes identifying people who are at risk for suicide earlier to help them get connected to help 
as well as working on collaborative projects to spread public awareness. She joins me now to share more about these local efforts. Dr. Kolbeck, welcome to Lake Effect. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's talk about Wisconsin specifically. Part of your work examines how suicide impacts different population groups. So can you speak more about that and what we're seeing in the state or in Milwaukee? Yeah, absolutely. So my work focuses on kind of three primary areas. Um, my dissertation research focused on suicide in among farmers and in rural communities. We also conduct research looking at veteran suicide um, in Wisconsin, and then we do some research and work locally here in Milwaukee County that's focusing on primarily suicide in young Black folks um, living in our community. What we have seen locally in Milwaukee County is that when we look at kind of the, the makeup of folks who die by suicide, we have seen over the past couple of years increases in younger folks of color and primarily younger Black males dying by suicide in our community. Whereas, for example, the proportion of you know, middle-aged white males is decreasing, um, which is obviously great news, but then we're seeing this increase in, in younger folks in our community. And so some of the research that we're doing is focusing on things like, you know, better understanding how to identify folks who are at risk for suicide a bit earlier so that they are able to be, you know, navigated to the appropriate treatment that they need to kind of prevent them from getting to that crisis point in the first place. We're also, you know, thinking a little bit broader and thinking about some of the kind of structural and community level factors that contribute to suicide and suicidal behavior in our community. We talk a lot about, you know, racism and structural um, discrimination. We talk about things like housing um, and other kind of social determinants of health and basic needs that, you know, we find are contributing stressors to um, a number of the suicides that we see. With all these contributing stressors that impact suicide rates, especially amongst uh, different populations, such as young Black men, like you said, what are some key suicide prevention strategies you're looking into? Yeah, that's a great question. So my background is in public health, um, and so I tend to think upstream. Um, and when we're talking about you know these social determinants of health, these really upstream factors, a lot of times prevention lies in policy and systems change. And so really thinking about, you know, what policies could be reflected in not just legislative policies, but organizational policies, school policies, community policies that could potentially be examined, you know, to think about how to better support folks, particularly if they are having trouble meeting these basic needs, if they are, you know, encountering a period of their life where there's really extreme and kind of acute stress, or even if they're living in neighborhoods where things like community violence are really prevalent. Um, what are some of the ways that our policies and our structures can be more supportive so that, you know, again, we're preventing folks from getting to that point of a suicide crisis? You know, of course, we do talk about other prevention strategies, you know, things like educating community members on identifying potential signs of suicide risk in, you know, their colleagues and their friends and their loved ones, and then knowing how to appropriately navigate folks to the resources that are out there. And again, a lot of that involves um, boosting awareness of those resources that are out there in the community. So, I mean, suicide itself is, is a complicated health issue, um, you know, and so prevention is also 
complex. Um, so, and it's prevention across kind of, you know, the spectrum of a person's life, you know, and, and the, the communities in which they live, work and play. Um, and so when we think about suicide prevention, it really needs to be kind of that multi-tiered, multi-pronged approach. One example of this in your new suicide prevention strategies you're working on include collaborative efforts such as the Gunshot Project. Can you share what this project is and who's involved? Yeah, the Gunshot Project is um, a program that um, has been implemented in, in different states across the country. It's a really innovative program that works with federally licensed firearm dealers to provide temporary voluntary offsite storage for firearms uh, when someone is in um, a mental health or suicide crisis. We know from evidence in the literature that creating a safer environment for an individual when they're in this type of crisis can save lives. You know, one of the best things that we can do to prevent suicide is to put time and distance between a person and their means for ending their life. And so the Gunshot Project really does that by, you know, again, offering this voluntary temporary storage to get that firearm or those firearms out of the home of a person who is struggling so that there's time for that person to receive the services that they need to get beyond this crisis. And so the Gunshot Project really, again, works with these firearm dealers across Wisconsin to not only you know, sort of provide them education and, um, and resources for themselves and their and their customers, but also, you know, if they're interested to help support this this voluntary offsite temporary storage. A lot of work has been done with this um, through um, what's called the Captain John D. Mason program, which is run through the Medical College of Wisconsin in partnership with the Zablocki VA Medical Center here in Milwaukee. There are other groups across the state that are engaging in this work, including groups up in the Fox Valley, really, again, to sort of continue to populate this map of, of federally licensed firearm dealers across the state that are willing to provide this, this great storage option for folks. You mentioned it's also helpful for suicide prevention within the veteran population, but can this also help serve someone, say, a parent, if their child is struggling and they need a place to put their gun in storage? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, we talk about safe storage really, really often with parents, um, you know, and that can certainly involve, you know, storing your firearm in a gun safe that's locked, you know, storing your ammunition separately from the weapon or, you know, this offsite storage, um, which is really the safest option for, for lethal means safety. You know, I, I hear quite a bit that a perception that, you know, if, if you have a firearm in the home, it's it's really about self-protection and it really is about that self-protection for many people. But if you have children in the home and particularly children who are experiencing a mental health crisis, it's really, really important to store those firearms safely and out of reach of young people so that, you know, when they're in this, this crisis and when maybe they're feeling impulsive, they don't have access to that method. Suicide is often portrayed and has the stigma of being an individual's problem. So how are you working to shift this perspective and help show that community-driven changes like the Gunshot Project can be more impactful? Yeah, this is kind of where I tend to get on my soapbox a little bit. Is We tend to think about mental health and suicide as, as like you said, this individual issue that it's really about, you know, an individual managing their feelings, managing their struggles. Um, but we know that so many of the stressors that individuals face are outside of, you know, maybe their scope of control, 
maybe involve workplace and community and, you know, even some cultural issues. And so what I like to talk about is it's very important to reach in and provide that environment of support for folks, regardless of whether or not they're having mental health issues. When you are experiencing a mental health or suicide crisis, even getting out of bed is difficult. So the the prospect or the idea or the notion of trying to find help on your own, particularly when, um, you know, the healthcare systems can be very challenging to navigate is a very, very difficult thing to think about for somebody that's in that space. And so really, I think it's it's all of our jobs to become what I call expert noticers, you know, noticing when people are, you know, maybe struggling or maybe seem like they're having an off couple of days and just taking the time to sit down with that person, have a private non-judgmental conversation, check in and see how they're doing. And then again, knowing what those resources are um, to navigate folks to if, if they are in fact in a suicide crisis. But one of the most important things that we can do as loved ones and community members and coworkers is just being that safe person for somebody to, to talk to and, and being willing to listen because it really is about our community. It really is about our culture. It's about our policies and our systems so much more than it is about the individual. And so we need to be able to wrap around folks to provide that support. You mentioned earlier about looking at suicide and suicide prevention under a public health lens. Is this a more recent shift in the medical community? Do you think this is part of like what's prevented some forward momentum for a while because it is seen as a, an individual's problem versus this is a public health perspective? Yeah. Yeah. When we think about the field of suicidology, kind of historically, it has been very sort of clinically oriented um, and suicide has been pretty pathologized, you know, as an individual level medical issue. And certainly I, I don't want to take away from the importance of understanding suicide as, as a biological health issue. It's, you know, chemical, it's genetic. There are biological factors in our brains that certainly can predispose a person to having these different issues throughout their lives. But we know that that's not the whole story. We know that, you know, not everybody who has depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder dies by suicide. And so there has to be more to the story. And that's where the public health perspective really comes in. Um, and like I said, you know, there has been, um, to your point, a recent shift, I think, in our understanding of suicide. Um, I'm a member of the American Public Health Association, and this is the first year that the conference is having a session specific on suicide. And so we are starting to have these conversations, both in the, you know, kind of the, the traditional mental health and suicidology space and also the public health space that we can really work together in a transdisciplinary way to be a little bit more creative and innovative about how we um, move upstream again, to think about how we can prevent suicide before it becomes a crisis. Um, because once it becomes that crisis, it becomes more difficult and there becomes more of a, a potential that, you know, there's going to be more damage that's done in that person's life. So that early identification is, is a key component of public health and a key component of suicide prevention. What are some areas in this shift that you're most excited about seeing how they develop or how you implement them in the community? I'm really excited about policy change. Um, because that's kind of where I geek out a little bit is, you know, thinking about the different policy strategies that are available to us as, you know, kind of another tool in our toolbox. Um, I'm also really excited about um, some recent research that has focused on better understanding 
um, not only risk for suicide, but also sort of the expression of suicidal thoughts and behaviors among diverse folks. Um, a lot of our understanding and our conceptualization of suicide is really rooted in kind of a Eurocentric, white, non-Hispanic, and primarily male perspective. And we know that the experience of suicidal thoughts and of, of mental health challenges in general really differs based, based on a person's lived experience. And so by better understanding um, these nuances of, of again, suicide risk and, and mental health challenges, we're going to be able to better identify um, when a person is struggling. If you're, if you're simply looking for sadness and hopelessness and uh, feeling like a burden, you're not necessarily going to be able to identify everybody that is is maybe struggling. You need to think about other things like aggression, for example, or family discord, or you know how a culture might think about suicide to really get the broader picture of what we're looking at. And I think as we continue to better understand and then tailor our intervention and prevention strategies accordingly, I think that's what's gonna help to move the needle on rates of suicide. Well, Dr. Kolbeck, thank you so much for joining me to share more about this issue. Yeah, thank you for having me. Dr. Sarah Kolbeck is the director of the Division of Suicide Research and Healing at the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. If you or someone you know is struggling, help is available when you call or text 988. You can also reach the crisis text line by texting the word TALK to 741-741 for help that's free, anonymous, and available 24-7. There are zombies among us. Zombie trees, that is. We'll tell you what they are and the causes and possible solutions in about 15 minutes. But first, we'll tell you about a new project that's helping educate young people about the local histories of Milwaukee's people of color. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Educators are facing battles over what histories they teach and how it's taught, especially when it comes to the histories of people of color in the United States. A new Marquette University program aims to help teachers navigate that. Milwaukee Roots, the democratizing local history project, will engage students in the local histories of Milwaukee's people of color. The project will teach students through place-based experiences, allowing them to learn from community leaders and visit historical landmarks. The goal is to have these resources available to teachers across Milwaukee. WUWM's Eric Von Fellow, Nadia Kelly, speaks with Dr. Melissa Gibson, associate professor at Marquette and leader of Milwaukee Roots, about how this project will change the way social studies is taught in public schools. Milwaukee Roots is it's a project that really grew kind of out of two things. Um, it grew out of the historical knowledge of our faculty director, Rob Smith, who is frequently invited, particularly when it was the 50th anniversary of the March on Milwaukee, um, to share local history with schools and teachers. 
So there's that piece, but then there's another piece which grew out of work with a local high school after COVID that really needed to work on getting students back on track for graduating who'd failed social studies. And so they asked us to develop a credit recovery program for them, St. Joan Antita High School. And what we developed was a place-based exploration of local history and communities in Milwaukee. And so Milwaukee Roots is our um, attempt to really kind of scale up these two discrete projects into a citywide program to teach teachers and students in Milwaukee and the surrounding uh, towns about local history and about our community's civic wealth, uh, cultural wealth, and contributions to our local history in the hopes that that also inspires our young people to become active, positive members of their communities. Could you maybe give some examples of the types of activities, the types of programs that you're wanting to do as part of Milwaukee Roots? Sure. I can share a couple that I've done in the past with high school students when I was facilitating like the first version of Milwaukee Roots at St. Joan. One of our afternoons, it was like a three-hour experience. Um, One of our afternoons, we met at the Walkers Point Center for the Arts, um, met with the director of the Walkers Point Center for the Arts, who filled us in a little bit on the history of the organization organization. Um, so we met her. We got to walk around the gallery, see the art that was there. That would, on its own is interesting to students. Um, but then one of my history colleagues, Sergio Gonzalez, who researches the Latinx community in Wisconsin and Milwaukee, Uh, shared a bit about the history of Milwaukee's Mexican community. You know, we probably spent about a half hour with Sergio. He was showing us family photos and documents and filling us in on some of the history that many of our students had no idea about. And then we proceeded to walk around the neighborhood. And we walked, for example, past Folia Salon, um, which is actually where the first location of the Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish was in Milwaukee. And so we stopped, we looked in the windows at Folio, we talked about what it means that that this important history is not documented for the public. Um, and so we continued walking, and then we went to Zocalo, where we had a chance to talk with um, Jesus Gonzalez about uh, this amazing project of sort of economic reinvigoration. And we talked about, and we were able to learn about the difference between gentrification um, and when someone who has grown up in the community, as Jesus did, um, what it means to reinvest in one's own community and to create this kind of hub for culture, for food, for gathering. And then we were able to build on that in later visits where, um, you know, we visited Sherman Phoenix and were able to talk with business owners there and learn about the history of the neighborhood um, from people who live in the neighborhood itself, learn about the uprising in Sherman Park. We did a walk across the 16th Street Bridge to mirror the March on Milwaukee. Um, So a lot of place-based experiences to get us to understand that there is a rich history in our city, and it's our stories. Um, And they're stories that are usually left out of K-12 teaching and that a lot of the general public doesn't know either. In addition to creating these learning environments where you can expose students to these local histories through place-based experiences, um, I saw that there is a reference to creating a pedagogical ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, could you explain a little bit more about what that means? For sure. As I was um, leading what we called at the time Explore Milwaukee with the students, this place-based experience, 
my teacher friends and my pre-service teachers were always like, can you share? Like, how did you know about these things? And where is this? There are so many amazing um, archives, resources, uh, scholarship in our city on its rich history and its community contributions. But it's all over the place. So our hope is to build, and we've, we've begun this, is to build a web-based, um, we call it an ecosystem because it's actually ecosystem mapping software that we're using that sort of maps Milwaukee's neighborhoods and important places within those neighborhoods that tell the history in particular of our communities of color in Milwaukee and of uh, community contributions and leaders and public art in the city of Milwaukee. So teachers will be able to access via the web this um, ecosystem map of our city. And each place, when you open it up, it will have links to resources. It will have um, assessment suggestions, essential questions for teaching, um, itineraries if you want to do a place-based exploration. In the long term, we hope to be able to house oral histories that students conduct or include students' own um, history documentation or archival work of places in Milwaukee. Um, and uh, also then to connect that to uh, student-centered practices in social studies teaching. Um, and so helping teachers learn how to engage their students in um, not just learning about history, but doing the work of historians, doing the work of community activists, doing the work of geographers. Um, and so we call it an ecosystem because it literally is <laughs> online, an ecosystem, and because curriculum and teaching and students' work all exists together. I would love if you could go into a little bit more detail about how this program will influence a lot of the way history is taught in Milwaukee public schools and maybe the impacts that you wish or you think this project will have. So we are going to be offering a week-long uh, summer camp, <laughs> right, a week-long professional development program for area teachers in Milwaukee Roots, where they're going to go on some of these place-based excursions and then work with faculty on learning about and developing innovative approaches for teaching local history and local civics in their classrooms. And then throughout the school year, we will have regular what are called communities of uh, communities of practice will meet, um, which are really teacher directed. Like, what is the support that area teachers need to be able to implement what they learned, and where we can build materials together if they want guest speakers, if they want to do a book group. So through these two mechanisms, um, the summer camp and the community of practice meetings, and then along with the curriculum, what we hope at a minimum is that this network of teachers will begin to see how for almost every topic in their social studies classes, there is a really local connection that we can teach that bigger issue through. We're also really excited to partner with Milwaukee Public Schools in building out their Milwaukee history course, um, which is on the books, um, but I don't know that it's offered right now to high schoolers so that we could see that in more schools. And then ultimately, while our first year we're really going to be targeting Milwaukee teachers to attend uh, the Milwaukee Roots summer program, but in the future we'll target more than just MPS. Um, but we're beginning with MPS because the history really focuses on Milwaukee, on our city, and we're committed to serving our Milwaukee students. So I saw that a lot of your research is focused on educational justice. Mm -hmm. I was very curious about, like, what is educational justice 
And does this at all relate to the project itself? Yeah, it absolutely relates. You know, I think about as a as a scholar being initially really concerned with these big philosophical questions around what is educational justice, and I can't I can't give you a short answer to that. I would say that it, it depends a lot on um, what our most marginalized educational communities see as justice for themselves. Um, but I would say that the idea of like educational sovereignty and being able to be an equal participant in shaping one's education and being able to do so with dignity, seeing oneself in school, in the curriculum, in one's teachers um, is part of it. But it, it certainly, I think, varies from community to community. And so I've done uh, research on different ways that teachers try to take these ethical commitments um, and enact them and how they design lessons, how they interact with students. My disciplinary area of focus is the social studies. Um, And so Milwaukee Roots is really the culmination of all of this work, right? Like what does it look like to try in the social studies to teach in a way that is going to engage students, is going to equip them with tools and experiences to be positive community members, to understand their power as citizens, to see the way that their communities have shaped our city for the better over time, um, to see themselves as belonging to our city, and that those experiences also can lead to better educational outcomes, right? Feeling invested in one's city and one's future can lead to better outcomes, whether measured um, on test scores or just engagement, showing up to school. Attendance and truancy are issues in Milwaukee public schools. Um, So how do we get students committed to see that this place matters, that their schools matter, what they're learning there matters, not just in their individual lives for jobs or college or whatever, but for our city, for our communities, for our families, that what we learn at school can change our world for the better. Is there anything else that you want to add? You know, what I will say is that there is so much excitement and hunger to learn about our city and to think about how we can teach it, how our city itself can become our source for teaching history, teaching community engagement. And teachers have trepidation because There are a lot of demands (laughs) on social studies and history teachers, whether from standards, whether from curricula at the high school level, a lot of demands on coverage of material, um, concern over political climate um, and what's allowed and what's not allowed. And what we really want is for Milwaukee Roots to be a way for teachers to feel like it's possible to teach in culturally and contextually relevant ways. And it's so essential for democratic citizenship, which we know is in crisis in our country. And that at the most basic level, positive democratic citizenship requires that we buy into the idea of a shared community and a shared common good, and that that community and that common good cares about us back. And so that's part of what we hope to teach and to cultivate in Milwaukee Roots. 
Dr. Melissa Gibson is leading Marquette University's Milwaukee Roots Project. She spoke with WUWM's Eric Von Velo, Nadia Kelly. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation you'd like to hear on the air, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lake effect. Coming up, we'll learn about zombie trees, what they are and why they're endangering Wisconsin communities. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Spooky season may be over, but there may be a hidden horse still lingering right in your neighborhood. As the seasons change and the weather becomes more unpredictable, storms and heavy winds could be creating a phenomenon known as zombie trees. To learn more, Lake Effect's Joy Powers is joined by arborist Adam Passo from Davy Tree Expert Company in Milwaukee. So we're going to start uh, with the biggest question, what are zombie trees? Yes, what are zombie trees? Zombie trees are trees that have been affected somehow by some outside factors. So it could be a high wind from a storm, could be drought. A lot of times it's things that you can't see as an untrained professional that are the scary part of the zombie trees is that you know, there could be a crack from a high wind that it kind of twisted, and it's just kind of sitting there in purgatory until it, it does something. It grows or it falls down. You could have drought where on the inside of the tree it kind of dries up, and that's where you could have some decay happening that you can't see. You know, there's also root issues that could be, you know, not visible to an untrained eye and a certified arborist could see that there's some girdling roots, there's some root rot. You know, it's just a tree that looks okay. It's hanging in there, but a lot of times it's a slow decline, and then eventually you see the effects, and it, it's devastating. So essentially this is a tree that I might pass and go, fine-looking tree, normal-looking tree, but on the inside it's it's dying. Yep, yep, Exactly. Uh, you can have a crack that's really destabilizing that tree. Um, and it's very fine crack, you know, that you just pass by it. There's no way you'd ever see it because of the bark, the texture of the bark. But there's ways that we can tell that something's just not right. Now, this is an issue that has been growing for, for some reason. Why are we seeing these increasingly in Wisconsin and seemingly uh, around the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, we're getting more extreme weather patterns, you know, higher winds during the spring. You know, it's always who, who knows what's going to happen. You get some major straight line winds coming through. Um, you could even have some limbs that are, are hanging up in the canopy of a really leafy tree. Can't see it, but an arborist can definitely tell. And that's when, who knows what happens. It, it can just sit there for months, you know, years even, and then it falls down. And and I guess that really gets to the issue with zombie trees because you think, well, yeah, sure, you know, trees get sick, they die just like 
anything else. But it seems like one of the, the problems here is that these are trees that for all intents and purposes look fine and then kind of on a dime can die. And, and it seems like that's what causes the, the next problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That, there's times I've been sitting in my truck. Uh, this happened recently. I was sitting in my truck and we had a really heavy wind the day before. I went to go look at a tree that was on a house. Um, I was sitting in there in my truck, and about 15 yards behind me, this huge red oak just falls across the road for no apparent reason. It was it'd been sitting there, probably compromised from the wind, uh, and it just boom down it goes, and it could hit me, could have hit anybody walking along. So it's kind of scary stuff. For sure. I mean, it it's almost like something falling from the sky, except it is basically falling from the sky to yeah. the side of you. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a, a zombie eating brains, but <laughs> it's just as scary. Yeah. Now, what can you do? Because it, it seems like these are issues, at least some of them, that can be solved if you're able to find them. Yeah, there's ways to protect trees, even if they're compromised. You know, there's cabling, bracing. Um, there's ways that we can help the health of the tree. You know, maybe some pruning that will get rid of the hazard, and then the tree can, you know, trees are really resilient. They can figure out a way to take over whatever was lost. So that energy just gets redirected, and trees will survive at all costs. Now, you, you've said a lot of the time it's difficult to know when this has started to happen to a tree, Are there little things that people can look out for to go, oh, this tree might have an issue? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The first sign is canopy decline. You know, the the leaves were really nice size last year. This year they're a little bit smaller. Uh, You can start seeing a little bit more light through the canopy. You know, even in a dense canopy, if right down the middle, Uh, You can see light through there. That's probably a bad junction, uh, and it it probably needs to be cabled together. Um, If it's a whole kind of decline in the tree, you know, have somebody out. There could be something more sinister going on. We can help if it's just, you know, an old tree that's kind of in decline. We can help that a lot. But you'll notice maybe a little light color on the bark. You know, it's a real dark bark, and then you see this line of light color. That's a dead giveaway that maybe there's a a nasty crack that we can't see all the way through, um, but it's just the start. It seems like really the the last thing is taking down the whole tree. It seems like there's a, a variety of intervention methods before then, but when is it that we go, this tree's got to go? Yeah, yeah. If you see some root heaving, you know, there could be the ground coming up a little bit on one side that you didn't really notice the other day. That's a big sign that the the roots were severed. Sometimes those roots can be grown back. You'll see a hump around a tree. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, a recent thing and the tree is compensated, put a bunch of roots out and it's stabilized again. But a lot of times that's not going to happen. You know, one side of the tree will fracture one side will those cells will compress each situation is different that's what's exciting about tree care you know we're all individuals so are they so 
it's just having a trained eye, take a look and make sure that everybody's safe. All right. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Adam Passo is a certified arborist and district manager for Davy Tree Expert Company in Milwaukee. He spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. Throughout November, we'll be highlighting the histories of Wisconsin's native people told by tribal elders. Here are elders from the Bad River Ojibwe tribe sharing a prosperous part of their history. 1896, the Chicago fire, they said they had enough lumber in there to rebuild Chicago. During the lumbering times, many of these people had lots of money, what they could get for their lumber, and they had to go through the Bureau to get it, Bureau of Indian Affairs. They had to write vouchers for whatever money they had needed, okay? And I can remember when, when I was a youngster, we used to have, still have that pole over there where it's at yet today, but uh, it was this time of the year, and they used to have old Model T's, Model A's in a circle, and they used to have like smudge pots all over also. Once in a while they'd turn on their headlights of their cars and stuff, and everybody would be dancing out there and singing and smudge pots, and there'd be a bonfire there. They used to have a county fair there. It used to be right in front of where my mom and dad had their house. I said, well, when you say fairgrounds, what do you mean? And she said, well, just like a county fair. She said they'd have vegetable displays, and they would have their bakery and their jams and their jellies, their canning. and. She said that would be part of it, but a lot of it too had to do with more recreational type things. And it was a very important part of their entertainment at that time. My dad used to tell me, he said they would come from all over. I suppose if there was a ball game, you know, that that was something very important to them. A lot of friendly competition between reservations when it comes to sports. Still is. Baseball games, that was the big thing here on the reservation for many years, right up until my sons were old enough to play. We had some pretty good baseball teams here. A game every Sunday, grandstand popcorn and stuff. And a lot of these games that you see today, one game is lacrosse, you know, that we play today here. You know, I have a lot of lacrosse sticks and stuff given to me by the elders. I still have them at the house. Lacrosse was given to our people there. There was an elderly woman, she was real sick. In this guy's dream, he had a dream about this game. In that dream, it said to, to make these sticks, to make a ball out of a knot and how to play it. And so all the energy they spent on that field that day, them young braves and stuff, went into that woman. And that woman slowly got better and better. And that's how they healed. And most of all these games you see today that we play has, has got to do with that healing part, like in a healing ceremony. That was Mary Big Boy, Thomas O'Connor Sr., and Robert Paulus Sr., Bad River Ojibwe elders sharing a part of their tribe's history. This conversation was originally recorded by PBS Wisconsin. And that wraps up today's show. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or would like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. 
There's a shortage of special education teachers in the Milwaukee public school system. Tomorrow on Like Effect, we'll tell you about an initiative to recruit and retain them. Plus, we'll look at the history of veteran care in Milwaukee and how a new generation of veterans are being cared for at the Milwaukee Soldiers' Home. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.